Hello, I'm Rabbi David, and welcome to the Rabbi Study. We are currently just a short while away from the holiday of Hanukkah, and it's time, I believe, to go into a series of explaining Hanukkah and the laws of Hanukkah. Hanukkah commemorates a holiday on the events that happened during the Second Temple period. Now, in Judaism, there are what we call the seven, there are the seven major holidays, five biblical, two rabbinic, meaning that they were added in later, the two rabbinic being Hanukkah and Purim. They are still important holidays. There's some people who are under the mistaken belief that Hanukkah is a mega Jewish holiday equivalent to the Christian Xmas. That is incorrect. But there are also those who seem to have the misguided view that Hanukkah is a minor holiday that only became important because of Xmas being nearby. And that is also incorrect. We have two different sets of incorrect assumptions coming from people who do not have the greatest understanding of Hanukkah, its laws or history. There are quite a lot of laws around Hanukkah. Though being a rabbinic holiday rather than a biblical one, there is no what we would call Yom Tov part of the holiday where one would be forbidden from labor, etc. Rather, the holiday has that people are allowed to go to work and do their regular labor, but there are set times and methods for laying menorah. There are other customs and rituals. It's not some seemingly very, very small, minute holiday, Jewish literature, whether it's in the Talmud or in Jewish writings elsewhere. There is an extensive plethora of writing and literature around the rules and rituals of the holiday, the regional customs, etc. In the Talmud, the laws of Hanukkah are in the Tractate of Shabbos. The reason is there weren't extensive enough rules and rituals to deem its own tractate. Further, the Mishnah does not have it as a separate matter. The reason why it is partnered up in the Tractate of Shabbos is because Shabbos is, has a custom, has a religious law of lighting candles to welcome in Shabbos at the right at the beginning at sunset. And from there, it positions into Hanukkah's candle lighting, and from there, the laws and rituals of Hanukkah. It's basically there because it's a good fit. Anyone familiar with Talmudic literature will know that many times areas of law are in tractates where at first it seems it wouldn't fit, but when you realize that they use certain laws to transition to others, it fits very nicely. Now, Hanukkah comes around in ancient Judea to go through the very brief history of the backstory. The Persians 
after giving Blaue the Jews to rebuild the temple. The Persian Empire gives the Jews a semi-autonomous uh, area called, called uh, the Satrap of Yehud. Yehud meaning, which is where we get the term Jew from. Yehud actually is the Persian pronunciation of today Arabic also for uh, Judah. And it was over the, because the Jews there were the remnants of the kingdom of Judah, which is what they became known by. And there was a local Jewish governor and an appointed Jewish governor from Persia proper. There was a high priest in the temple, etc. The Macedonian Empire, under the leadership of Alexander the Great, invades and conquers this land from the Persian Empire. And it's a very fascinating history. There are some stories about Alexander with the Jews. According to the story, Alexander the Great is coming in to lay siege to Jerusalem. The Persian governor flees, not enough troops to fight. The high priest at the time, Simon the Just, there is no Shimon at Sadik in Hebrew, decides to, he will leave to go greet Alexander. And um, so my priest goes to visit Alexander the Great to negotiate a peaceful surrender. According to the story, as he and the Jewish dignitary leaders approach Alexander, two versions of the story. One, he went to a city very far north where Alexander's troops were. The other one is he met Alexander the Great in the valley near Jerusalem. The high priest meets Alexander. According to the story, Alexander got off his horse and bowed before the high priest and informed those around him that before battle, if he would see if he would pray for victory and he would see a vision of a holy man and these kinds of garbs who looked exactly like the high priest in the sky, and he would always have victory. Historians are skeptical about this part of the story. <laughs> Once again, these are accounts written years after the events, and it's possible that that part of the story is a legend. The part that we do know is true is the high priest, Simon, goes to actually meet Alexander the Great. And the crux of the story, which is universally agreed upon, is he negotiates a treaty. Alexander the Great would not destroy any cities in the land of Israel and Judea. In return, the Jews would submit to his authority and pledge loyalty to him. Uh, further, Alexander the Great would be afforded a place of honor in the Jewish community. Alexander's troops would be allowed to rest in the land and the people would provide them with provisions, etc. There seems to be this ongoing theme of peaceful submission and return for not destroying. And Alexander the Great also promised he would not interfere in the temple service in any way or Jewish rituals, and that the te Jewish temple would have complete religious autonomy under Macedonian political rule. Amongst the various stories, not to go into details, Alexander the Great wanted to visit the temple, but people had to walk barefoot in the temple and they were afraid Alexander would feel offended if he had to go barefoot like a commoner. 
So they found a loophole involving certain type of cloth slippers, which they encrusted with gems to show his respect. And that Alexander wanted to see the Holy of Holies, which they said the high priest only goes in there once a year on the holiest day of the year. And that anyone who goes in there unauthorized dies as a punishment by God. So Alexander agreed not to pressure to enter and gave it respect. There's some other stories about Alexander. His army spent a couple, spent a short time in Judea resting up before they went on to continue their conquest. And there was no opposition. He did leave the temple and the priests completely alone. Further to show Alexander honor, Simon ordered that all male sons born in the priesthood in that year were to be named Alexander, which still today remains a pretty common Jewish name as a way to show their loyalty to Alexander the Great and to honor him. And this started off fairly decent relationship between the Hellenic cultures and Jews. After which, Alexander the Great uh, eventually continues conquering, eventually dies later on. There's a multi-way civil war between the different factions. It goes five, seven, three, it floats around the different numbers. At the end of the day, then the kingdoms and the civil wars are finished. Judea is floated between a couple hands and ends up in the hands of the Hellenic Egyptian monarchy. Uh, this was the Ptolemaic uh, Empire. The Ptolemies leave kind of kept Alexander's word. The Jews are left alone. It's their political rule. The temple and religious authorities are left completely alone to their own economy and doesn't interfere with the temple at all. In return, the priests offer sacrifices to honor their ruler and for his longevity and health under depending which ruler it was. However, the Ptolemies get into a fight with the Seleucid dynasty based out of Syria for control over the Judean territory, which is a very strategic point if you look at a map. It controls a land route from stretches from the Caucasus in Armenia to Egypt. It also is on a trade route that connects Mesopotamia to Egypt, which hooks around the Horn through Syria. It provided the ability to control a huge chunk of coastal trade in the Mediterranean. It's one of the reasons why there have been so many wars in history fought over that territory. While some have been religious, for the most part, the main thing is its strategic importance in ancient time between the land trade routes and the sea trade routes. Extremely valuable and important location. So the Ptolemies and the Seleucids fight. The Seleucids take control. The Seleucids at the beginning decide that they are going to not interfere at all with uh, Jewish rule. However, the Seleucid dynasty does come up with a few conditions, such as whenever a new high priest is picked, he officially has to be approved or rubber stamped by the ruler. The Jews don't view this as a threat to the autonomy promise because it's not interference. They view it as a political assertion of authority. However, over time, the Seleucids uh, break that word and comes a civil war 
as a result of that. Uh, essentially, uh, main purpose is, is a certain fact during this period, some Jews became Hellenized and adopted Hellenistic culture, values, etc. And they wanted to force the rest of the Jews to forcibly Hellenize. There have been movements that have tried to force secularization amongst Jews in different parts of history, run by secularized Jews. They, some of them still exist till today. Uh, one of them is a very powerful party in the ruling coalition in Israel, and that's pushing certain laws. However, figuring in all this, the Jews, you know, at first they replaced the high priest who was too much of a traditionalist with his brother, who was a Hellenizer, who wanted to support it, making Hellenistic reforms, things forbidden in Judaism, into temple worship, temple service. Jews protested, but it was hard to do so, and even though the man was a Hellenizer, he didn't push any radical reforms, didn't step on any toes, pushed a secular Hellenistic culture, such as opened up uh, Hellenic gymnasiums across little area started bringing in various other forms of Hellenic culture, statues in public places, but kept the temple home. Jews protested, nothing happens. For the radical Hellenizers, this was not enough. And so they launch and so they launch a campaign to have him replaced by another person who according to two different ancient accounts, according to one who was someone who was a priest but not eligible for the position of high priest, the other account the person wasn't even from a priestly clan was just a radical Hellenizer. Immediately start forcing radical reforms into the temple service. Uh, they bring Greek pagan idols into the temple in Jerusalem, start bringing in sacrifices of pigs, all sorts of other things. Priests who do not go along with the reforms are dismissed from service and backed up by the threat of troops. Many small bands of rebels start forming and start doing pot shot attacks against the Hellenists, but not much goes on. Eventually, the Hasmonean, the uh, Matasyahu Hasmonean, Matasyahu of the Hashmanai family, which is a important part of the family, which is important part of the, one of the priestly families, who was actually from the extended family of the high priest, uh, Matas Yahu, who is an elderly man and the son of the previous high priest, upset over the dismissal of his cousins and the destruction of the temple, it's both factors, starts organizing mass public protests. Eventually in the city of Modi'in, which still exists today in Israel, when some radical Hellenizers were doing things in public to try to pressure and force the Jews. He drew out a sword, killed the radical Hellenizer and the two guards were with him, and turned to the crowd and said, Mi kamocha ba'elim Hashem, members with God follow me. The actual acronym of that phrase, Makabi, which also in Hebrew means hammer, which became their war cry and why they also became known as the Maccabees. It launches a revolt. And essentially, some people consider it a civil war between 
the radical Hellenizers and the traditionalists in reality, it was more the radical Hellenizers getting the government to break an existing treaty and trying to impose and force themselves upon all others and forcibly secularize. Really wasn't a civil war, it was one side started a war and the other side fought back. So around 167 BCE starts the actual fight. But to go a little backstory further is during the leading buildup to the first action, before the first real military action takes place, before the incident at Modi'in, Antiochus IV and his Jewish radical Hellenizers decided to, they abolished kosher. Kosher slaughter was illegal. Uh, circumcision was banned, as the Greeks proposed it. Monotheism was actually banned. Uh, amongst the other things, they also banned teaching children uh, Judaism. Children were allowed to learn about Greek culture, Greek heritage, Greek religion, Jewish religion, Jewish culture, that was prohibited or bitten under the law. So when you look at what actually happens, it's this whole long thing and the country's a cauldron ready to bubble and burst over. It just took one person to do. And in fact, the Jewish leaders, both from the priests and from the other leaders, were all debating over what they should do. The radical Hellenizers never at any point had support of more than 5 to 7% of the population anyways. But they were trying to figure out what they should do because the Seleucids were militarily powerful. And according to the story, the daughter of Matisyahu, came into the middle of one of the many meetings that they had had and said that she had been conducting secret meetings with the women and said that if the men would not fight to defend God and Judaism, then the women would do it. And if the men didn't start pick up weapons soon, the women would pick up weapons and fight because they had had enough and that the men had been doing enough talking. A few days later came the incident in Modi'in, which started everything. Matisewa's daughter is actually considered by many the catalyst, and her end was all the women who she had organized underground meetings with. And it's uh, quite impressive, and we'll get later into the rules and laws of Hanukkah, because there are things tied to her. So the war lasts. There are several battles I could, if people are interested, go into the history and story of Hanukkah in greater detail. This is more just a summary background. So, 167, and my problem is 164, Jerusalem is liberated after a major battle, including the Syrian commander who was a veteran of many campaigns, dies. And I'm using the term Syria because it's the Syrian Hellenic Empire. Many people call it the Greeks. That is incorrect. The term in Hebrew is Yavanim. Well, Yavanim could mean Greeks. It could also mean Hellenists. And it was the Syrian Hellenic Empire. So when we say Yavanim, it actually means the Syrian Hellenic Empire. 
not the Greeks from Greece. It's actually Syria. And Syria's still today, yeah, fighting with uh, Judea. So, a Jewish state called the Kingdom of Judea or the Kingdom of Israel, depending who you go by, formed in what's Israel today. There were several wars fought and slowly increasing the land and control over things. Over time, it builds up. Eventually, they liberate everything and they start the Hasmonean dynasty. The beginning rulers only called themselves priest and head of state. It was later rulers that took on the title king, which caused its own internal political fight because priests were not eligible under Jewish tradition of being kings. Then there was a heretical movement that arose during that period, and there's a persecution of the traditionalists by kings, and it's a whole messy thing, the Hasmonean dynasty, that's its later history. The Second Commonwealth, as it's called, lasted until the Roman period. State of Israel today is the Third Commonwealth. So we have this interesting piece of information about Baxter to Hanukkah. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding further to go into. So let's answer some basic questions that have been uh, shown. You know, whether you read coming up in various publications, things people have asked me, as there are a lot of publications that tend to write introductions about Hanukkah. Secular publications, many of them written by people who are not that knowledgeable on the topic and are mostly writing articles, copying information from other people not as knowledgeable and so on. So there's a lot of errors and misconceptions. So why is it called Hanukkah? There's two different names. One is because it's the holiday including in you know, religious services, it's called Hanukkah Samizbeach, or in contemporary Hebrew, Hanukkah Tamizbeach. I'm going to different pronunciations about the 11 different classical Jewish accents and pronunciations, and then the modern day Hebrew amalgamation of three of them, and it's all okay. Hanukkah Samizbeach. Hanukkah comes from Hanukkah Samizbeach, rededication of the altar, because the ceremony when they liberated the temple and they cleaned it up was the ceremony called the rededication of the altar and they offered sacrifices. That was the actual ceremony that happened on the 25th of Kislev in the year 164 BCE. Second name is the victory that liberated Jerusalem was on the 24th of Kislev. On 25th is when they entered the city after the false high priest and his followers fled for their lives. And the term in Hebrew, Hanu, means they rested. Chav is the alphanumerical for 25. So Hanu, Chav they rested on the 25th, or Chanukah. Now, back to what we discussed earlier about the different holidays. So on the Jewish calendar, as I mentioned earlier, there are seven major holidays and festivals. Five biblical ones, such as three periods. Uh, three pilgrimages, Passover, Shavuos, and Sukkos. 
as we already discussed, the Yom Roman Days of Oz, otherwise known in English as the High Holy Days, which we've discussed, and then the two holidays established by the Sanhedrin, which was a supreme religious body officially dissolved by the Romans in the 4th century, but existed in secret till as late as around 425, because they had to flesh out the rules for how to function without the supreme religious body before they dissolved themselves, which are permit Hanukkah. And of course, we have the minor holidays like Tubishvat and others. So, there are those who try to say, is Hanukkah a major holiday? And the answer is yes, it's one of the seven major. Now, many articles attempting to so-called educate people on Hanukkah try to say, oh, that it wasn't a major holiday, but rather it's a minor holiday that only became important because of it being around Xmas time and Jews wanting to copy. And you'll see this in a lot of ancient publications. That's false. Hanukkah traditionally has actually been considered a major holiday, historically, well as in Jewish literature and writings. There is actually tradition of having a Masiba, which is a big party. In some communities, they even would put on Hanukkah plays and for the, with them by the community. This was not some minor holiday. It may not have been one of the biblical ones. It's actually one of great importance. In fact, the Talmud states and to light the Hanukkah menorah, it's so religiously important that one is actually required to sell the clothing off their back to afford to do a minimal amount of lighting. Now, Now, remember, well, the lighting is an important part to Hanukkah because of the miracle of the menorah, which I will get to later. I didn't put in the historical backdrop because it's not part of the history of the story of Hanukkah, but rather part of the miracle of Hanukkah. So Hanukkah was considered major during the rise of the reform movement in the late 1700s to early 1800s. Some reform leaders declared it a minor holiday. Others completely actually abolished Hanukkah. One famous secularist uh, Jewish leader said that for a Jew like him to celebrate Hanukkah was an anathema because Hanukkah was the devoutly religious Jews fighting against the radical secularists. And some of those early reform leaders were radical secularists. The head of the reform in Germany at the time, Abraham Geiger, argued to the German government that Jews who do not adopt their secularist reform should be denied equal rights under the law, and that all the community organizations should be handed over to reform and Orthodox people be banned from any community leadership positions. And his view was supported by like half the reform leaders in Germany at the time. I, there was some who opposed him, it wasn't universal, but that, in a lot of places, reform took that harsh of a radical secularist. In fact, some early reform leaders actually looked at the set radical secularists that started the war in the Hanukkah story as actually heroes to emulate. I'm not going to go into it further. The reform movement today has radically changed in many ways from the reform movement of back then, though there are still some elements that are militantly anti-religious. 
like it was back then, but during the Orthodox Reform theological fights and the parts of the Reform came around, celebrating Hanukkah became, in many ways, a political statement. Those who were very brass and open about their celebration of Hanukkah was a sign that you supported the Orthodox, and not doing it showed a side of Reform. We actually have some excellent writings from Rev. Samson Raphael Hirsch, who led, who was then one of the main leaders of the Orthodox in Germany and in, the, in opposition to reform. And Dr. Abraham Geiger wrote extensively of this as well. In America, prior to the celebration of to the, to the uh, introduction of reform in America, it was celebrating the traditional Orthodox manner. There's even a documented story about Jewish soldiers uh, celebrating Hanukkah and Valley Forge and George Washington moving amongst the men. He saw them lighting the menorah and asked them what it was for. George Washington, by the way, was very familiar with the Book of Maccabees. He was a highly educated, familiar with the classical, with the classics of, any, of his period. So he was familiar with it. And he actually told them that Compare, he then told them that he was comparing their cause for freedom to those of the Hasmoneans and said that they will have victory just like the Jews did on Hanukkah. George Washington historically was a great friend of the Jews. However, in the early, the difference is American Jews did not go as publicly outward in their celebration like their European counterparts, but if you look at America, Christmas, Xmas as a big celebration is a later thing in colonial America it tended to be much more muted, much more downplayed. It wasn't as big into public displays, more personal in the home and same thing with Easter and other Christian holidays. It wasn't as festive out there as Europe, which comes more into America later. There's different theories as to why America was more muted. Some connect to the Puritans, some connect to more scarcity of resources, there are various theories. So the Jewish celebrations tended to be more internal in the home and less out there. It gets more out there at around the time the Christians are getting more out there, but that doesn't mean it's connected to its importance being near Xmas and Christians. Reformed Judaism in America happens to gain prominence around the same time. Xmas starts gaining prominence as this big outdoor festival, trees in public, nativity scenes in public, public displays rather than the home, the rise of a consumer culture around it. As opposed to in Europe, where Reformed Judaism quickly shunned it away as this anachronism that was opposed to everything they were, Reform in America viewed Hanukkah as something to be seized upon because a big part of the Reform movement was societal integration. So they morphed Hanukkah into a Jewish Xmas but made the narrative from a religious one into it was a holiday of American ideals and freedom. They compared the Maccabees, the founding fathers, heavily relying on rights of Benjamin Franklin and others who had made that comparison. They took a very different approach. And you could see that in the writings of early American reform leaders like uh, Rabbi Dr. Wise, uh, Rabbi Max Michelbacher, and others. You could see that very different approach. He's a Michelbacher tying it to the Confederate cause. He was a Confederate and the leader of the reform movement in the South at the time of the Civil War. 
but they take a very, very different approach. The myth of it being connected to Xmas or being a minor holiday is because most American Jewish history scholars come from a reform or heavily influenced by reform theological and political outlook. Many of the early historians were openly reformed. And therefore, that narrative kind of got stuck in place that it was from a reform perspective that completely ignored how Orthodox celebrated it and how it was celebrated before reform, but rather fit into a reform narrative and then took the fact that there wasn't the big outward display consumerism as a sign. It's, essentially, there are more historians today that are looking more into religious writings, particularly even in America. <coughs> And this anti-Orthodox narrative in history that tended to dominate has been going away in recent years as Orthodox sources and Orthodox writings have become accepted in the mainstream as they should be, particularly primary source documentation. Okay, so next question is, so if it's a major holiday, what are the important religious aspects to Hanukkah? So, the most loyal aspect is the lighting of the menorah. We'll go into later the religious laws of right menorah when I go into the laws of Hanukkah. But essentially, when they liberate the temple, one of the rituals is the lighting of the menorah. Because the oil for the menorah had to be free of any impurities, from when it was put into its jug from production, it had to be first cold press. Otherwise, what we today know as extra virgin olive oil. It would have to be double sealed and sealed with the clay stamp of the high priest. If the seal was broken in any way or tampered with, it would not be considered fit for use. The olive oil actually can only come from the olive groves in one region in northern Israel. And they knew that it would take a total of eight days to travel, properly process, purify, inspect the oil, sent it back to the temple. So they decided they were going to light the menorah anyways, and a miracle happened that lasted eight days. Again, debate whether they put in all enough to do one day's worth of lighting, and it lasted eight days. The other one is, is they divided up the oil into eighths, the pour an eighth each day, so at least they would have a partial each day, but it ended up lasting just enough till the next day's refill as in the temple. In the morning, there'd be a little oil still burning and they'd refill to there to keep it going each day. And they would relight it. However, there is a custom to have a Sa'udas Mitzvah on Hanukkah. While not mandated, it is considered a highly recommended in religious scripture and sources. And Sa'udas Mitzvah is a holiday feast, traditionally done with family. So there is a tradition, so there are some who do say it is religiously obligatory, but most just say it's highly recommended, so you're supposed to have it with family and with wine and delicacies, and it's a whole feast. There's actually certain traditions around which night of Hanukkah it should be for some. Many families have the tradition to have it on the fifth day because it's, it's mentioned that way in many uh, religious writings because it's the only day of Hanukkah that can ever fall out on Shabbos. 
and there's reasons for that. There's a custom to eat fried food because since oil was part of the miracle, you should fry foods in oil. <laughs> the two most common people know about are potato latkes and donuts or sufganiyot. Uh, sufganiyot, as I mentioned, is a Jewish dish that goes back to antiquity. It's mentioned in the Talmud. Sufganiyot is singular in the ancient, the plural was sufganin. Today, the plural is sufganiyot. In connection to Hanukkah, Rabbi Maimon ben Yosef, the father of the famous Rabbi Maimonides, and documented this as a Hanukkah tradition in many Jewish cultures around the Mediterranean region. And they would fry the dough a little differently in each region. Some would put in filling, some wouldn't, but the concept of the donut. Latkes from potatoes comes from the potato comes to Europe. Before then, it tended to be a cheese batter or a cheese curd batter. And there are different regions, whether it's a cheese curd batter or a ricotta batter or a cottage cheese type batter. Either way, it's a cheese batter that was fried and then potatoes came and that took over as the dominant. Then we have a feast with further in the feast, there is a custom to eat dairy foods and that's highly traditional. And that's why a lot of times there's a that's why the fried cheese for dairy also came in while they originally. And the purpose of dairy fruits and why traditionally latkes or some sort of fried cheese dish was common. The purpose of cheese was the niece of Judah Maccabee, the daughter of Yochanan Hasmonean. Uh, Judith. During one of the early battles, when the, the Jews were uh, under siege, there was debate whether the Jews were in the city that were under siege or the Jews were laying siege to the city. There's a bit confusing between the different accounts, but once again, it's... However, she had heard from a rumor that the general command of the forces had been infatuated with her. He was known as a beauty. She had met him before at some some sort of thing. So she went into his military camp and told her that she would give herself to him on the condition he would have a feast of wine and cheese first with her, and then they would have a union together. She got him drunk and intoxicated and fed him a ton of cheese, and he fell asleep. Asleep, she took a sword, cut off his head, snuck out from his camp middle at night, and the Jewish forces under her uncle, went into battle the next day with the general's head on a pike in the very front of the army. The Hellenic Syrian forces seeing their general's head on a pike at the head of the Jewish army caused them to break around, rank and flee. And because of that, just because she plied him with cheese to make him sleepy, after the wine, there's a custom to make sure it's dairy. Also, the feast should be conducted with hymns and songs as part of religious celebration. And the food is in the songs. There's lots of traditional ancient Hanukkah songs, such as Yavanim Nechusuelai, or the Jews of Greece used to sing, Sorium Nechusuelai, because even though Yavanim means Hellenists or Greeks, because they didn't want their Greek neighbors to think they were singing about them, they wanted to make sure they knew it was the Syrians, Sorium. 
so the song Yabanim Musolai, as I Mechashvanim, there's Maot Sur, which is song Rock of Ages, Maot Sur Yeshua Si, Lashon Arabetzapeach, Eko based Afila Si. There's all these songs, and I could go over them later. And of course, there is the concept going back to the second temple of a community Masiba, which is a community celebration with food, music, dancing. Many synagogues and Jewish organizations have a Masiba. Uh, last year was the first year the Masiba I was at to not have formal dancing. They did have food, there was a lot of self-separation. They had a whole thing. I mean, they follow it was they followed government seating capacity guidelines and everything. It was not as fun as usual, but understandable as COVID. There's also a and then I will go more into then there's other customs. around the holiday to answer, but there are some more because we said that there's other things. We also have a special prayer service because this is answering the question about special rituals for celebrating it. There's a custom to give out charity to the poor and needy. Special custom with the children, which I'll get into later with the religious law parts. There's also special prayers such as Alhanisim, which means on the miracles, and a second part to it called B'nai Matis Yahu, B'nai Matis Yahu, the liberation. We say it during the prayers three times a day. There's also the recitation of Hallel's prayer service. We omit certain prayers that are not said on holidays. We take out the Torah to read from the Torah portion on Shabbos, Hanukkah. We take out a whole second Torah to read from a second special holiday portion. And, you know, and these are some of the things. I'm going to go into some many other customs later as I go into greater detail about many of the other details about Hanukkah. But just to get back on one more point, because I was saying earlier, the Syrian Hellenic Empire. But people say it was against the Greeks. Hey, just to reiterate, it was against the Syrians, Syrian Hellenic Empire. And we just need to make sure that people understand that the Avadim is not Greek. Now, one of the questions asked is, is a Kanora or is a Because they see different things doing both. And I saw an article published in one of the major newspapers saying that the term is incorrect and the proper term is Hanukkah and how it's wrong, blah, 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 written by an author who, from reading the rest of what she wrote about Hanukkah, I could say she is a complete ignoramus on what she was writing on. Though, to be fair, contemporary journalism doesn't really require, so everyone knows, much honesty or integrity. The proper term in religious writings, going back to antiquity, is called menorah or menorah shel Hanukkah, which in English we translate as the Hanukkah menorah. The word Hanukkah first appears in the 19th century during the Hebrew revivalist movement. 
and it was during by secular Zionists who were trying to turn the holiday into a secular holiday. And the reason is, is secular Zionists, when trying to wanting to rebuild the Jewish state, religious Zionists had seized upon Hanukkah because there was an early dispute in the movement between religious Zionists, secular Zionists. Not going to get into Zionist history right now. And the purpose of it was that they wanted a religious Zionists were showing it as religious Jews launching a revolt against their colonial occupier to restore Jewish rule to the homeland and spiritual. They wanted to secularize it. So they turned the Maccabees into these strongmen and they named, you know, various Zionist youth clubs called their sports teams, them, you know, the Maccabee, you know, Maccabee clubs. And today Israel's sporting event is called the Maccabee Games. These are things that actual Maccabees would have been very much against. However, they were trying to secularize it because they felt that this was a national liberation holiday for coin for the national liberation of the Jewish homeland to be for Jews again and a Jewish state. We have to go back to the last Jewish state. So the term Hanukkah came around as a secularization to separate it from the Menorah, which made it more religious. Interestingly, in Israel, <coughs> most secular Israelis still call it menorah. From a historical standpoint, menorah is the correct term. Religious standpoint, the only difference between our menorah is that it's yes, it's not the same menorah as the temple, which was six branches, it's eight branches, and that different design. There's definitely a lot more I want to discuss about the religious elements of the holiday, the religious laws and customs, which I will get to, uh, God willing, over these next few weeks until Hanukkah. But one of the other questions I'm always asked is understanding the miracle of the oil, as I mentioned earlier, about the rededication ceremony. Is that is that how did this become from, you know, this into a whole holiday? Because the war lasted for years. And why the menorah, you know, and I'm sure this was one miracle, but wasn't the whole war miracles, other things, war lasting on for years. This was just the liberation of Jerusalem. Why specifically this? And part of it has to do with, we don't want to celebrate war and military victories. It's considered an un-Jewish-like concept. Therefore, the celebration of the rededication rather than the actual war. As we mentioned earlier, the whole thing with the oil. However, at the time, the holiday was originally only established as a temporary holiday. There's a concept in Judaism called temporary holidays, celebrated in a specific region or a specific group, only for a temporary period for the purpose of their own era. And these exist throughout history, and they would disappear after a few decades. There were ones that in many communities had stuck around hundreds of years. And in the 18th century, there was a movement to, for these communities to remove them because they weren't the real holidays. They were considered temporary celebrations. There are some of these that still exist, like the Chabad movement celebrates uh, when their founder, Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, was released from the Tsarist Russian prison he was in when he was falsely imprisoned back in the late 18th century. And they celebrate that liberation of his. So 
and they still celebrate it today even though it's one of those things that should have only been lasted a few generations but once again it's these are like they're not real holidays but they're celebrated by a group for a specific purpose you have amongst right now these days amongst the ethiopian jewish communities the celebration of the day of operation solomon which is what brought the huge amounts to israel a lot of them celebrate that as a day you have these things so it's a temper the sanhedrin later on established it not just as a permanent holiday but as a holiday for the whole jewish community rather than the original eight rather than just the original jews around the jerusalem area in judea so while and while the holiday service and all the nisim offers praise and thanks to god for the victory and its eventual establishment of Jewish homeland. The purpose of that is we're saying as part of celebrating the holiday, we're thanking God for those parts, but the part we're celebrating is, is the rededication and the miracle that involved in it. And this is a, so this is much longer than my usual previous ones. So I'm hoping this is a good primer. I intend to go into the nuances of the laws of Hanukkah later. and going through all the different aspects. But just to close out, to just remember that this is a very important holiday of the Jewish calendar. There are many laws and rituals around it, and I hope to educate everyone further on the importance of this holiday and all it entails as we go further. And hopefully this will be the first holiday I'll be able to have everything up before it starts and in great detail. I have more time now. And after we do Hanukkah, I will hopefully be able to go into more questions and aspects about understanding Judaism. This has been Rabbi David for the Rabbi Study. Have a great day. So we are here to discuss Hanukkah Part 2. And to go into greater detail on the holiday and what it's about. <coughs> Hi, I'm Rabbi David, and welcome to the Rabbi Study, Hanukkah Part 2. So we discussed last time the background of Hanukkah, some common misconceptions, and some new basic, inf some basic information for those who are less initiated. There's obviously a lot more into the history of Hanukkah that one could go into, but Let's focus in on the basic customs. So the most famous thing about Hanukkah everyone knows about is the lighting of the menorah. So what is it with the lighting of the menorah? <coughs> the lighting of the menorah is to commemorate the miracle of the oil and the menorah in the temple. The menorah in the temple had six branches plus the center called the shamosh which was used to relight all the others every single day. The temple practice was they'd fill up oil in all the branches. They would burn for 24 hours. There was the last one lit would be the shamash, and they would take from that to relight all the others when they could fill it the next day, etc. That's the general gist of it. Because it's eight days of Hanukkah, we add on an extra, eighth extra branch. Now, as I believe I mentioned last time, some people call it a Hanukkiah. 
not menorah. I see lots of articles out there that says the proper term is Hanukkah, not menorah. Anyone who says Hanukkah is the correct term, not menorah, is 100% wrong. Hanukkah isn't the wrong term, but it is not more correct than Hanukkah menorah. Hanukkah menorah shel Hanukkah is the term that goes back to ancient times. It was used in the antiquity. It was used during the time of the Hasmonean period. It was used during the period of the Second Temple, through the, until the end of the Second Temple. Used through the Talmudic period, all the way until the modern era. Hanukkah is a term invented hundred and something years ago as a way to try to create a new word created more connected with the Zionist movement as a way to create a religious neutral term for the menorah because many, well, some early Zionist leaders were religious, many were not, so it was there to create a religious neutral term for doing something with the holiday for those who are not religious. The term Hanukkah is a very modern term, but it is while it is technically by now a correct term, it is not more correct than menorah. It's actually less correct than menorah, which is the original, ancient, and proper name. Now, the eight outer branches are so the eight main branches are supposed to be of the same height. You cannot have menorah where they are varying heights. The purpose of it is every one of them has to be lit the same height. The shamash traditionally is taller, but actually hypothetically be shorter. It just has to be a different height to differentiate it. There's reasons why it's traditionally taller. Some have it at the end, some have it in the middle. While the temple menorah had a very specific design to it, our menorahs could be any design or shape as long as there are eight branches that are running in a straight line from each other of the same height. Shamash could be stuck in the middle somewhere and somewhere off to the side as long as it's attached. There are many different ways to light the Hanukkah. There are many different ways to light the Hanukkah menorah. Some people use candles. Some use oil. Anything that burns clean and does not have a foul smell is considered valid. Many people use olive oil, particularly what they call shemen zayisoch, or first cold press, aka extra virgin olive oil, because that was used in the temple. Since it's what was used in the temple, people use it also. For, the, for lighting their menorahs. I personally do use extra virgin olive oil. One does not have to. There are people who do wax. It just has to produce a clear light. It cannot be foul smelling. There are many types of wicks, etc. that go along with this. And all of these are fine. You do what you feel is best in your situation, in your household, etc comes to getting oil for lying the menorah. The Talmud actually says that one should sell the shirt off their own back to be able to afford to light. If one is destitutely poor, the absolute minimum they should light is just one light. We're not talking the shamish in all this. The shamish is there to light the others or in the casement oil. You you light that first and the because you're not allowed to use the light of the menorah for reading by or anything else. By the shamash is there, it's you're using the shamash and everything else is coincidental. But, so with the menorah, so with the lighting, you have to do that minimum. If one can afford more, one is required to do the proper amount. Proper amount is 
one plus the shamash the first night, two plus the shamash the second night, three plus the shamash the third night. The proper way to do it is, is we add on one new light for each night. The Talmud actually debates, do we, should we start off with eight, do, do we, like, do we start off with eight and go down to one, or do we start off with one and go up to eight? So, the reason is, it's the increasing of the miracle each day, so we'll start off with one, then we go up to eight. These are the academic debates that were dealt with in ancient times to explain why we do things. So we have here the lighting each night. When you light each night, we light from left to right, but the new candle, or new lights are put in right to left, meaning the rightmost is the first night, the leftmost branch is the last night of Hanukkah. So you move the adding the new ones from right to left, but we light from left to right as in the newest first. So say on the fourth night, you light the fourth one first, then the third, then the second, then the first. From left to right. Fairly simple. There are many different customs around who lights. The exact minimum is one light for the whole household. There are many different customs regarding this. Sephardic Jews, those from the greater, what we call the greater Sephardic world, have a custom where only the man lights, the husband, head of the household. If there is a son over bar mitzvah and there is no father, the oldest son is the one who lights on behalf of the family. Some people might say this doesn't sound politically correct today. There's long and complex reasons behind that. In the Ashkenazi world, there are several other customs. And then there's some, some of the smaller communities varying customs, because while we use Ashkenaz and Sephardim as the two main ones, there are many sub-custom groups within them, and then there's some of the, we call smaller you know, groups, like called Romaniot, which don't fall into the exact either category, etc. But to focus in on the common ones. In Ashkenaz, there are two traditions. What, tradition one is, all the males over bar mitzvah light, well, technically there's, technically there's more. It's either all the males over bar mitzvah or all the males who are of the age that they can understand what they're lighting for have to light. And then there's the custom that everyone, includes the daughters. My family's personal custom is everyone lights. Now, amongst the custom that everyone lights, it's practiced in certain parts of Lithuania as well as in certain parts of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that, that therefore everyone lights in the household. But however, there are some amongst those who say the wife doesn't light separate from her husband. It's together, so it's just all the daughters and sons. These get into complexities. However, because there is an established custom in some communities, that if one wants to light on their own for whatever, wants to light addition on their own, there is no problem with it. Obviously, this is not a religious ruling as a general thing. This is just an observation. Please contact your local Orthodox rabbi for actual specifics. Now, there's also uh, various... Now, there's the custom of where to place it. The 
ancient tradition was one would light up by the doorway to their house that opens up to the street so everyone would see right outside. In Israel, this is still practiced. Outside of, Arts, outside of Israel, the custom has developed in most communities that we light inside the house but by a window facing the street so people can see. If it's in a time or place where there's high anti-Semitism, it's dangerous, then light on a table in the party of one's house that one sees. If one's in an apartment building, upper floors, one should light in their house, close away from the window where everyone in the house can see rather than by the window. And there's debates over how high the apartment level is. Once again, contact your local Orthodox rabbi. There are some who even at higher levels still put it by the window, even though it's people from the street can't see. There's a lot of subjective. I'm not here to go into that part. Now the menorah needs to be placed higher off the ground. By higher off the ground than by about approximately no higher. No, well, it should be placed no lower than you know, it needs to be, at, there's a whole thing that it shouldn't be too close to the floor. There's a debate over the exact height. There's the ideal height of how many inches it should exactly be. But it shouldn't be any lower than 9 inches. And it shouldn't be, and ideally, shouldn't be higher than 30 inches off the ground where you light. But, obviously, it depends on your situation, you know, I technically light higher than 30 inches. There's a whole, there's a lot of complexities, and this is only one custom. There's another custom that says 50 inches is ideal height. Once again, these are all dependent. The minimum everyone kind of agrees, you can't light it lower to the floor than a certain height. It's the optimal height it should be lit. Now, the problem is, is how high, if it's higher than a... There's a debate what's called 20 cubits. A cubit is either somewhere between 21.25 inches and 23.5 inches. For those using the metric system, 53.975 centimeters and 59.7 centimeters. And that it should float somewhere and be, that it shouldn't be any higher than that off the ground. And the question comes if one is in an apartment building, you know, how high? Because these are like some of those big outdoor menorahs that you see in public lightings have to meet those heights. So it's 20 of those units. Because it says if the window is higher than that, then it's not really within people's easy eyesight and range. But in today, where we have with our own well-lit and apartment building, some people, it's, it's a whole complex thing. I don't want to get into that. Consult your local Orthodox rabbi. Ideally, the time to light is right after a point called Seis HaKochavim, which is when there are three stars visible in the sky at night, or if the sky would be clear, one could visibly see three stars. That is ideal time to light it. Obviously, if one can't light till later, one should wait till later. Now, from the point of nightfall until the lighting, one is not supposed to do anything obviously there are exemptions to rules like if one has to do something one's required to do something but ideally one should stop working until they're able to light them in or if one is able to and the ideal way when it comes to lighting is that the whole family should do it together if possible 
it's brought down in many of our ancient writings that ideally everyone should be together and celebrating together and commemorating together. However, you know, we all know that people have different schedules and things can't work. So we try to make it as ideal. Um, some very famous rabbis would, one famous rabbi, name is not important right now, but because his wife worked and would come home late, he would wait hours after the ideal period to light to wait till she came home to light. Technically, he could hypothetically have lit the, men lit the menorah, and she would have been considered to have been valid within his lighting, or she could have lit her own later, but he specifically waited for her. And it's consi generally considered ideal to wait extra time if it means the family together in a unit. Obviously, if it's not possible, that's its own thing, because a big part of Hanukkah is family. Now, there are, what should one do if, in the family, if, say, the husband's going to come home very late at night and everyone else is earlier and the kids might go to sleep? In most conditions, once again, ask your local Orthodox rabbi on a case-by-case -case situation, should be lit earlier. Should be lit earlier, and according to many, that the wife, as the highest-ranking member of the household there, should light it. The question is if there is no husband and there is a son over bar mitzvah, but in a case where even if there's a son over the bar mitzvah but the husband's coming home later, well, he could light later on his own, she can light on behalf of the family. This is, once again, dependent on your regional customs, but these are some of the more broad-based general accepted, but one should be particular about their customs of their ancestors from the diaspora. Now, women have a strong obligation in the menorah, and here's the part about with women. Because the women were very important in the myths in the, in the incident of Hanukkah, as we learned earlier, the two incidents in the previous one, one about the daughter of Matasyahu who helped start the revolt, and one about the niece of Judah, Judah the Maccabee who killed one of the Greek generals. Because of the importance of women in this whole affair, <clears throat> it is generally considered that it's therefore women have an obligation to light, and therefore in the customs of the people like my family, where the women do light, it's just as important for them to light with a blessing as it is for the men. In the Sephardic world, they have their own custom that just one person lights for the whole household. However, the woman in those situations, if the husband isn't around or there is no husband, may light menorah on behalf of her entire family, as I said earlier, according to some based on their traditions. If there is a son over bar mitzvah, he should light it for the family, but that is not a blanket rule. These tend to be regional customs, regional variants. And it's a complex thing, these regional variants in the diaspora, because of different societies, different situations, different schools of thought and understanding religious law, arose, and therefore these minute little differences seem to have come around over the past 1,500 years of the diaspora since the finishing of the Talmud. A man or a woman who lights on their own should light for themselves. Now, because a big part of the menorah is the, and the blessing is about the lighting, 
the question can be asked, what about a blind person? So a blind person is married, his wife lights for him and makes the blessing for him because she can see. If he doesn't have a wife, but he lives with a family or others, the blind person should... So we're talking about with a blind man. Blind woman, if she's married, also would do it with her husband, quite obvious. However, if a blind person lives on their own, they should light it with someone's assistance. If blind people live it with family members or others, they should do it with... They should, be, they should give a small fraction to contribute to the cost of menorah lighting for those relatives or people who they live with, and therefore they share a part in it. If both in the couple are blind, obviously they should find one of these things to either assist in someone else's or have someone assist them. But it is very important. Now, what should happen if on Hanukkah, for instance, the example is given, what if the husband is away from home and the wife lights, and so that if the husband knows that the wife for sure lights at home without him, then he lights wherever he is without saying the blessing, because the wife said the blessing in the house, half of the family. Of course, a big part of this is this, with times, there's a whole complexity with that, but this is the general basic rule. Though it's considered generally best to hear the blessing from someone who is lighting there to answer amen to, and then light his own menorah. If the wife doesn't light at home and it is not their custom, then they should try to, and they're on their, and they're not at home. They're on the road, or in someone else's house, you know, or at a hotel, or say someone in a dormitory. Then there are all sorts of things. Whether they should do it on their own or whether they should contribute into someone else's, and these are a case by case situation because there are so many different variants and customs. Ask your local Orthodox rabbi on those. So I don't want to make these into general rules even though these are the general rules because of everyone knows situations arise. Now, one of the other important things is the blessings. So we say, so the first bracha is Hadlik Ner Shel Hanukkah, that we're lighting the light of Hanukkah. Then there is the blessing of that we're saying, thanking God for performing miracles. <clears throat> and on the first night of Hanukkah, we say the blessing of Shechianu, which is for because it's the first time of the year we're doing this mitzvah, and it's commemor and it's the blessing of a new mitzvah. The other nights we do not say the Shechianu, we just do the blessing of Lahad like Ner Hanukkah and Shaasanisim. Then we light the lights. Now the, and the, now the question is, one of the things in the blessing about Sha'asanilus Avosenu says, you know, one of the things, it says La'avosenu for our forefathers, that God performed miracles for our forefathers. What does a convert do? A convert says it perfectly fine. You know, converts now adopt, it's like, you know, it's like an adoption. They're adopted, they're part of the Jewish people. It's not their biological, it's not their literal forefathers, but they're part of the community. They're adopted. This is, you know, their family, now it is their forefathers. However, ideally, the version says, 
performs a miracle. Le Yisrael must perform miracles for the Jewish people. That is the ideal for the convert, but if they say, I'll say no, it's fine because they're part of the family now. And then the question is, what about what someone, the status, what's called an onain? Onain means someone who's, who is a mourner, meaning one of their obligations, like parent or spouse, etc., has died. They're in the official period of mourning, but the body is not buried yet. If the body is buried, they like the menorah regular. What should they do if it's in that period? Because sometimes it could, you know, it could take, you know, a day or even, you know, to bury someone. It can't always be done as right away as much as it should be done as quickly as possible. So they said he should let someone else light the menorah, or she should let someone else light the menorah, and say all the blessings. And this person, and the and the person who's in the onain should say amen. If there's no one else, they light but don't say the blessing. What's the reason? There are onain. Someone who's in the status of onain is exempt from many religious commandments and blessings. They're not supposed to go to prayer services during that period. It's a whole thing until the body is buried as quick as possible. Because of the religious obligation around this, this is how it should be done. But once again, someone who is in this period should still contact their local Orthodox rabbi to get their specific ruling because these are not... Because sometimes there could be... Because the, well, these are the general rules. One should still ask regarding their own individual situation. Now for the Shabbos of Hanukkah. How does one light? One needs to light, obviously, because we welcome in the Shabbos before the, the sun goes down, which is long before the three stars are out. Therefore, we put, make sure there's enough, like the wicked, like it's a thicker wax candle that they make that burn longer or more oil. So that therefore, the lighting should, therefore we light and say the blessing earlier and then it should last all the way through. After the Shabbos, we say the Havdalah blessing, and then light the, which is the commencement of, which is, you know, for the end of the Shabbos, and then we do the menorah lighting. That's kind of those basic rules. Now, during the time of when the menorah is actually lit, there is a custom that women do not do any labor. That includes household labor. There are some who say that the exemption is as cooking food. Women could still cook food, but there actually are some religious sources that say that not even cooking, unless it's something they consider a pleasurable activity rather than work. The, at minimum is the first 30 minutes, which is the required amount of time for the burning. After that, they can, but it is ideal if they don't the entire time it's lighting. So if you get one of those big oil menorah glasses and you fill it up all the way, those things could burn six, seven hours. So if a, so if a woman really doesn't want, wants to find the religious excuse to get out of doing any work or anything at home, Obviously, changing children's diapers and those things don't count. That's a different story. Things involving the direct children. Once you get out of any housework, 
just to be very religiously strict, it's still lit. They're following the custom, and the reason is it's to honor the women who played the important role in the incident of Hanukkah and the importance of Jewish womanhood in the Hanukkah story. As these kinds of things are understood. Now there are many other customs on Hanukkah also. There is a custom on Hanukkah to have a party, a masiba, to celebrate like any other holiday. There is no specific requirements around this one, unlike some others. General idea is to have a party and celebrate traditionally custom. You know, there should be good food. There's custom on Hanukkah dairy and fried foods, so a lot of people serve those. There is an old tradition many people have that the fifth night of Hanukkah is when they have the Masiba, and the reason is it's the only day that can fall out on Shabbos. Now, people give out presents, and I have seen a lot of misinformation trying to tie the, online trying to tie this into Xmas, including some authors in some very fairly reputable publications. It's not exactly true. There is an ancient custom going back to antiquity, time of the Roman Empire. One of the persecutions by the radical Hellenists against Jewish practice and was signed up by Antiochus IV was the banning of teaching children Judaism. It was prohibited. They were only allowed to, you were only allowed to teach children philosophy, Greek philosophy, but they cannot learn Jewish studies or Torah. And the Jews operated uh, schools in secret in the hills and mountains to teach the children in secret Jewish religious instruction. And according to the ancient writings, what's said is, is they would have lookouts. So when they would spot a Seleucid patrol heading their way, they would hide the religious books and they would pull out four-sided spinning top, and they would spin it, and the kids would be basically playing a game. By the way, that's where the dreidel comes into Hanukkah. The whole purpose is, is trying to say is, look, we have this big, grand thing. This is how it is. The, you know, so... There's a lot of, so the presents are going to come in a second. So we have the dreidel, just to get off on a side point. And because it was the, because the Greeks did have gambling as a culture, teaching the kids gambling was not considered negative. So therefore, we have a custom to use money, though it's traditional that it's not intended to teach kids gambling. Money is so it's supposed to go to charity usually afterwards, not the kids to keep, to teach the kids certain concepts. Um, any tape people tell you instead they allow the kids to keep but they use chocolate coins, which is very popular today, therefore it's not actual money money. And that the words around are in Israel would say nun gimel hey pay for po, a great miracle happened here. And in outside of Israel it's nun gimel hey shin, hayasham, a great miracle happened there. And that each side are, co are coincident with, uh, you know, like, say, the pot and 
Gimel means you get everything in there, and Nun means you get nothing. Hey is half, and Shin slash Pei means you have means you have to put in whatever you have in your supply. So some jokes, particularly in Yiddish, around Nun is Nish, the Nun Hey is half half. Gimel, you know, it's like it's little cutesy stuff. It's not literal meaning, but the there are some commemorations to that, and it's an important part. Now, here's where this idea of presents come in, because we dealt with the education. There is an ancient custom, dating back to the Antiquities period, that on Hanukkah, parents would quiz their children on their religious studies knowledge. What did they learn in religious studies class? Religious studies, by the way, for different ages, it could be from little kids knowing their Aleph base, their, essentially their Hebrew ABCs, to in the younger kids how to do basic reading, to the older kids advanced intellectual religious concepts. What was the purpose? By teaching education to the children, by commemorating that the children learned in secret, we quiz our children on their religious knowledge. Tradition is, is that the children for getting questions right would be given money to keep. And that's where that whole thing ties into the dreidel and money and then giving it to charity because we don't want to teach kids about gambling for profit. But the idea would be giving kids money. People In some cultures, instead of giving money, they gave candies or candy nuts as a way to commemorate as a reward for the kids. But it does traditionally mention give the kids money or guilt in Yiddish. In Hebrew, it would be called kesef, but it would be giving the kids money. So, that's an ancient custom. In America, with the rise of the concept of the Xmas present, people started giving presents on Hanukkah instead of money. I do know people whose families still give money. They only do money. Money is the tradition, and that's what they give. But presents. So, the concept of giving out on Hanukkah has nothing to do with Xmas. It being presents instead of instead of being candy and money. Okay, that is a influence from Xmas culture. However, to quote the Talmud, Shava Kesef Kekesef. Anything that has the value of money is equivalent to money. Because if something has a set value of because of value of money has a value from a purchase in this, it's like it's money. So therefore, the idea of giving presents from the Talmud is basically the same as giving cash to the kids. So it's essentially an ancient Jewish concept that's been slightly tweaked. It is not influenced from Christians directly, per se, but there's some slight little bits. Now on Hanukkah, during uh, prayer services, there is a tradition to we take out the Sefer Torah and we have a special Hanukkah reading. On the Shabbos of Hanukkah, we bring out two Torah scrolls, one for the Shabbos reading and one for the Hanukkah reading. Further, we say during on each day of Hanukkah, the Hallel service, which is a celebration service, we say the Hallelujahs, like Hallelujah Day Hashem, Hallelujah, you know, the various praise of God. It's said on holidays, it's said on Rosh Hashanah, it's said on Sukkot, it's said on Pesach, it's set on the, all the holidays. Hanukkah too. It's one of the reasons how you know it's an important holiday because the unimportant ones, they don't say it. Though there's some controversy around 
some synagogues that have added it into an extra day this year, and that's its own question of itself. We're not going to get into the politics on that. That's not connected. Now, each day of Hanukkah, we do the read. We do the reading in the synagogue. We call up three people for the Torah reading, and it's from the chapter called "The Offering of the Princes," which is in Numbers. So it says on this day, you know, this is the offering. It's from, it's, you know, says, uh, you know, the offering is this. So it says on the first day they gave this offering for the dedication of the altar and of the Mishkan in the desert, and then on the day two, and then on day three, you know, and it goes, you know, and it goes through the whole thing, you know. So that's what we read each day as we go through. And it's a very important part that we add these extra things into the services because it helps signify how important. And because after Hanukkah there is Tubishvat, which is a minor holiday. But essentially, this is the gist of the important things about Hanukkah. There's also the custom to eat fried foods because in the ancient temple period, that felt that because of the period it was the fried. We fry in traditionally in oil, though it could be in anything to commemorate the fat the fact that America was with oil. Traditionally in Eastern Europe, because this was the time of year they used to slaughter geese in parts of Poland and Lithuania. They actually used to deep fry in goose fat. Never had it, but it sounds delicious. Various fried foods exist in many different Jewish cultures, as I mentioned in the last recording. And there's all sorts of customs, but essentially the idea is fried foods. Traditionally, you have latkes and donuts and all kinds of other things. And it's a time to enjoy with family and to have a family gathering. Many communities have a community masiba, a community gathering to celebrate as a community together. The holiday of Hanukkah and all of that. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful time to understand and celebrate and commemorate the miracle of Hanukkah, and to celebrate family, and to celebrate God, and religious studies, and education, religious education, and it's an important unifier and bond for the Jewish people. Hanukkah has been one of those ancient holidays that's been around for so long, since, you know, 167 BCE. It's been around for nearly, for over, for over 2100 years. And it's been an important part of the Jewish people and Jewish identity. It's not a holiday people should take so lackadaisically and lightly. There's a lot of misinformation out there, as I mentioned in the first recording. And hopefully this explains the basics of Hanukkah. Uh, people have questions, can submit them in online. And I'll see about answering them if there are enough to do its own full recording. And we will see about continuing on learning more about Jewish practices, and the holidays.